This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Frears, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Hey there. Welcome back to the show. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was ready to celebrate its 60th anniversary with a big celebration of the movies. If there were to be a compare contrast of the films that came out in 1987 versus the films from 1927, we would not be able to compare them at all. In 1927, the most risque thing in the movies was a topless Clara Bow in the Best Picture winner Wings, even though we never actually see her bare breasts. In 1987, Adulterous Affairs, with one movie not being afraid to show breasts, the Vietnam War and mob activities were just a snapshot of what audiences flocked to see that year. As for the Academy Award for Original Song, the category was in its 54th year, so there was no real reason to make much of a fuss about the category. Things seemed to be business as usual, with the few number one songs making the lineup for 1987. As we learn about these songs, remember that a lot of plot details will be revealed throughout this episode. James Bond's 25th anniversary in 1987 was marked with the release of The Living Daylights, with Timothy Dalton taking over 007 for the first time. Paramount Pictures was also celebrating a major anniversary in 1987, having stuck around for 75 years. The celebration continued all the way to the 60th Academy Awards in March 1988, as Paramount earned 11 Oscar nominations, including one in Best Picture for the worldwide phenomenon Fatal Attraction. One of those 11 Oscar nominations for Paramount came in the original song category for the song Shakedown from Beverly Hills Cop 2. After the immense success of 1984's Beverly Hills Cop, it was only natural that Eddie Murphy would step back into the shoes of Detroit cop Axel Foley. The only thing keeping the movie from coming out sooner was director Tony Scott, who had to finish making Top Gun first. Shakedown is the only nominated song from 1987 that features a previous Oscar nominee as its creator. That person is Keith Forsey who won an Oscar for co-writing the song Flashdance, What a Feeling in 1983 with Irene Cara and his mentor, Giorgio Moroder. The England-born Forsey began to break away from Moroder's school, as it were, after that Oscar win, writing the hit song Don't You Forget About Me for The Breakfast Club in 1985 and also producing albums for several major artists, including Billy Idol. But the pull of Giorgio Moroder brought him back into the circle in 1987 for Beverly Hills Cop 2. Forsey wrote a few songs for the first Beverly Hills Cop movie in 1984, and when that film's composer, Harold Faltemeyer, was asked to return for the sequel, he asked his fellow Moroder protege, Keith Forsey, to help write the film's main song. Like The Heat Is On, the song that came from the first Beverly Hills Cop movie, Shakedown plays over the main titles. This time, we see Axel Foley getting dressed in his Detroit loft, then driving recklessly through town in a very expensive car. Before this scene, we have witnessed a bank robbery led by a femme fatale played by Brigitte Nielsen, 
and the song basically says that she won't get away with it because the bad guys always lose. Well, lyricists Harold Faltermeyer, Keith Forsey, and Bob Seger use much better language to say that. into the crowded line break down take down you busted shake down break down hurry just about the time you think it's all right break down take down you busted shake down break down take down everybody wants into the crowded line
Bob Seger was born and raised in Detroit, which made him a perfect choice to sing the song. Glenn Fry, also Detroit native and the man who sang The Heat Is On, was the first choice to sing Shakedown, but when it was time to record it, he was suffering from a bout of laryngitis. Looking to keep up tradition and have the performer hail from Detroit, the producers called Bob Seger. After hearing what Faltermeyer and Forsey wrote, Seeger got rid of all the verses about working as an undercover cop and added new ones. Forsey and Faltermeyer still got credit as lyricists because the line in the chorus that goes, shake down, break down, you're busted, was their creation. In 1987, Seeger had been the lead singer for the Silver Bullet Band for almost 15 years, and the group turned out a few hits, such as Like a Rock and Old Time Rock and Roll. But the group had never gotten a number one single until Shakedown found its way into the top on August 1st, 1987. It only stayed there for one week, with the U2 song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, bumping it out. Glenn Fry didn't seem to be upset about not singing Shakedown. He reportedly didn't like the lyrics anyway, and after the song went to number one, he reached out to Seeger and congratulated him. Harold Faltermeyer was also celebrating his first number one hit as a songwriter. His instrumental compositions for Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun had been released as singles, but instrumental-only records had a hard time with success on a song-heavy Billboard chart. This was the fourth Billboard number one for Keith Forsey, following in the footsteps of Hot Stuff, Flashdance What a Feeling, and Don't You Forget About Me. And though their mentor Giorgio Moroder was not part of Beverly Hills Cop 2, Marauder had a lot of success at the Oscars, winning three of his own and producing the winning song Last Dance in 1978. Perhaps Giorgio Marauder's protégés could keep the winning going with Shakedown. So Shakedown is the only one of the five nominated songs of 1987 that played in the opening credits. The other four nominees play either in their movie's final scene or in the end credits or both. One of those songs plays during the final scene and spills over into the end credits. That song is Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, co-written by first-time nominees Diane Warren and Albert Hammond. Like Faltermeyer and Seeger, Diane Warren had been searching for that elusive reward of having written a number one song. She had only been a professional songwriter since 1982, writing songs for Laura Branigan, Barbara Streisand, and Tina Turner. Not a bad group of women to write songs for. You might remember that she wrote Rhythm of the Night for DeBarge, which was featured in the movie The Last Dragon in 1985. Rhythm of the Night was Warren's highest charting song, peaking at number three. But when 1987 came around, she would finally earn her status as the writer of a number one song with Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, the Oscar-nominated song from the romantic comedy Mannequin. So, as I said, Warren wrote the song with Albert Hammond, who she had been writing with for just a year. Hammond built his songwriting career as a collaborator with fellow Brit Mike Hazelwood in the early 1970s before working with such big names as Oscar-winning songwriter Hal David and future Oscar-winning songwriter Carol Bayer Sager. Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now is a pop song firmly planted in the 1980s. As performed by the pop rock band Starship, it proclaims that two lovers who many people might not think will overcome the obstacles in front of them will in fact prosper because of their love. And that's a very good synopsis of the movie in which the song is featured. 
Kim Cattrall plays a princess in ancient Egypt who travels through time and space to meet and fall in love with Andrew McCarthy's department store employee. Long story short, she becomes a department store mannequin in public, but a real person when alone. Their love for each other breaks the spell in the end, and Kim Cattrall is a real person able to be with the person she loves. It's a funny movie, even with a silly premise, and it was well-reviewed when it came out on Valentine's Day weekend in 1987. Looking in your eyes, I see a paradise This world that I found is too good to be true Standing here beside you, want so much to give you This love in my heart that I'm feeling for you Let them see we're crazy, I don't care about that Put your hand
Seven weeks after the film's premiere, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now hit the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and was also a big success worldwide. It was the third number one song for Starship and kept them steamrolling through the 1980s as one of the decade's top bands. As for Diane Warren, she almost had another number one song in 1987 when she wrote I Get Weak for Belinda Carlisle, but that only went to number two in December. Like Mannequin, the romantic drama Dirty Dancing was not projected to be a box office hit, especially coming from the struggling Vestron Pictures. But this movie, set in 1963 at a summer resort in upstate New York, featured a lot of hit songs from the era and a few new ones written for the movie that made up a best-selling soundtrack album. That album piqued the interest of people who were alive in 1963 and the teenage girls who had been falling for Patrick Swayze since 1984's Red Dawn and his lead role in the TV miniseries North and South in 1985. If Red Dawn and North and South put Patrick Swayze on the map, Dirty Dancing launched him into the stratosphere. Suddenly, he was a major heartthrob and a big movie star, all because he wiggled his hips and romanced Jennifer Grey in Dirty Dancing. Jimmy Einer was the head of Millennium Records until it closed up shop in 1984. He was hired as the music producer for Dirty Dancing during the film's pre-production in early 1986. That mostly meant finding the right songs from the early 1960s to use in the film, songs that wouldn't be too costly to use for a film whose budget was less than $5 million. Einer also had the idea to put in some original songs, which of course could mean Oscar nominations. And the best place to put an original song was during the film's finale, after Swayze utters the famous line, Nobody Puts Baby in the Corner, takes Jennifer Ground to the stage, and brings modern dancing to the stuffy, upper-class crowd. Director Emil Ardolino, who you may remember from a few episodes ago, was the director of the Oscar-nominated documentary He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing, was set to use an existing Lionel Richie song for the finale which would not have made sense because audiences would have known immediately that the song was written after 1963, which, as I said earlier, is when the film was set. An original song could be written in 1987, but if it had the sound of the 1960s, audiences would stay connected with the movie. Jimmy Einer's persistence paid off, and the filmmakers rushed through dozens of cassette tapes sent in from interested songwriters. While the songs were being discarded one by one, Einer reached out to Frank Previtt, who Einer had worked with at Millennium Records in the early 1980s. Previtt has said that Einer persuaded him to write a song that would change his life, and Previtt initially declined the offer. Previtt really wasn't in a position to refuse, since his band Frank and the Knockouts had just broken up and he was unemployed. The only directives Previtt had regarding the song was that it had to last about seven minutes and that it needed to start slow and then build to a fast mambo beat. That last instruction meant there would be some similarities to Flashdance with a feeling, which also started slow and built to a strong beat, and won an Oscar. John DiNicola, who was a bass guitarist with the knockout in its final years, helped Previtt with the melody for the verses. Nicola's friend Donald Markowitz helped contribute the rhythm for the percussion section, which gave him official songwriting credit. Previtt supplied the lyrics for the entire song and the music for the chorus. 
Because the song had to be played during filming of the finale, Previtt had to work fast. He decided to sing the demo himself, with longtime friend Rachel Capelli making up the female half of the duet. The cassette was submitted, and legend goes that I've Had the Time of My Life was the last song submission in the box of cassettes the filmmakers were pouring through to find the right song for the finale. Everyone loved Previtt's recording, and that's what played when filming took place for the movie's final scene. Now I have the time of my life No, I never felt like this before Yes, I swear it's the truth And I owe it all to you Yes, I have the time of my life And I owe
To prove that the song actually was playing during filming, Patrick Swayze mouths a couple of the words at the end. And when you watch them, it really takes the lyrics to a new level. The love that Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey's characters have for each other made them better people in this movie. And this summer in upstate New York will be forever remembered as the time of their lives. Though Previtt was sure that he was singing on the official commercial recording, Jimmy Einer already had other plans. He reached out to Bill Medley, one half of the famous 60s duo, the Righteous Brothers, and used the same power of persuasion that he used on Frank Previtt. Medley, though, was a hard nut to crack. He didn't like the title of the movie, thinking it was pornographic. Also, his second wife was pregnant, and Medley didn't want to be away from her. Einer agreed to move the recording session to Los Angeles instead of New York, and then held out one more carrot for Bill Medley. He got Jennifer Warnes to sing the duet, but she agreed to do it only if Bill Medley sang with her. Remember that Jennifer Warnes had a big success with the duet Up Where We Belong in 1982, which won the original song Oscar and gave her a song that made her famous. With the singers in place, the recording of I've Had the Time of My Life went off without a hitch. They recorded two versions of the song. The one I'm about to play is the film version that needed to fill the seven-minute finale, which included a reconciliation between Jerry Orbach and Patrick Swayze in the song's quieter moment. Now I had the time of my life No, I never felt like this before Yes, I swear it's a truth and I owe it all to you Cause I the time of my life And I owe it all to you I've been waiting for so long Now I finally found someone to stand by me Oh, 
way before. Never felt yes, I swear it's a truth, and I hope it. version on the soundtrack album is about two minutes shorter, with the instrumental bridge featuring the great saxophone solo severely shortened. But that didn't seem to matter. The song was a number one hit in more than 30 countries around the world, and stayed at number one in the United States for just one week in November 1987, four months after the movie was released. Dina Cola and Previtt also wrote the song Hungry Eyes for Dirty Dancing, used in a montage showing Jennifer Grey's character learning how to dance. Though Jennifer Grey's baby and Patrick Swayze's Johnny aren't really falling in love at this point in the movie, the song conveys the emotion the two had to convey for the dance they will perform at a neighboring resort. Because Previtt's band had recorded the song back in 1984, the song had no chance of getting an Oscar nomination. But the new recording by rising star Eric Carmen made it a big hit, getting up to number four on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Patrick Swayze also wrote a song for Dirty Dancing. Well, sort of. She's Like the Wind was written by Swayze in 1984 with Stacey Whittelitz with the goal of putting it in the movie Grand View USA. Haven't heard of the movie? It was a precursor to the official start of the Brat Pack era about rebellious teenagers. When She's Like the Wind was rejected for that movie, Swayze reported asked for it to be in the 1986 movie in which he was starring called Youngblood. It got denied there as well, but Jimmy Einer loved it for Dirty Dancing, performed off-screen by Swayze after he's fired from the resort and before he returned for the big finale. like the wind through my tree She rides the night next to me She leads me through moonlight only to burn me with the sun She's taking my heart but she doesn't know what she's done Can't look in her eyes She's out of my league 
Academy's list of eligible songs from 1987 is not publicly available, but I'm guessing that She's Like the Wind was eligible because it had never been recorded before its use in Dirty Dancing, even though it wasn't written specifically for the movie. The song was a big hit for Patrick Swayze and probably made the filmmakers of Grandview USA and Youngblood envious that they turned their noses up at the song. The fourth Oscar-nominated song was hinted at during the main portion of its film, but only as an instrumental. The movie is The Princess Bride, and the music from the nominated song plays as the love theme between Buttercup and Wesley. Before he sets off to earn a fortune big enough to afford to marry her, Buttercup and Wesley have a romantic moment when they pledge their undying love for each other.
Buttercup and Wesley are reunited later in the movie, and the theme returns. It was the basis for the song Storybook Love, written by Willie DeVille. Before getting his assignment to write the love song for The Princess Bride, he was born William Borsey Jr., and created the stage name Willie DeVille sometime around 1974 when he started the band Mink DeVille. The band was one of the top punk rock bands in New York City in the late 1970s and stayed together through a shift in musical genres in 1980. In 1986, Willie DeVille decided he wanted to pursue a solo career and Mink DeVille was no more. His first solo album was called Miracle, which was produced by Mark Knopfler, the lead singer of the band Dire Straits. At the same time he was producing DeVille's album, Knopfler had been hired to write the score for The Princess Bride. DeVille wrote and recorded Storybook Love for the album Miracle, and Knopfler thought the song would be a great addition to The Princess Bride. He and DeVille presented the song to director Rob Reiner, who instantly agreed to put the song into the end credits. The song is very different from the three previous nominated songs we've heard in this episode, lacking the big instrumental bombast and vocal strength that made them hits. It's very low-key and subdued, very fitting for a song about two innocent lovers in the days of Knights and Fair Maidens. Come, my love, I'll tell you a tale Of a boy and girl and their love story And how he loved her oh so much And all the charms she did possess Now this did happen once upon a time When things were not so complex And how he worshipped the ground she walked And when he looked in her eyes He became obsessed my love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel Love was stronger than the power so dark A prince could have within his keeping His spells to weave and steal a heart Within her breast but only sleeping My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel my love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel He said, 
heart at the foot of your dress she said don't you know that storybook loves always have a happy ending then he swooped her up just like in the books and on his stallion they rode away my love is like a storybook story but it's as real as the feelings I feel my love is like a storybook story If you've heard songs by Dire Straits, you might know Mark Knopfler's singing voice, and you might think he's singing storybook love. Before I knew that they were two different people, I always thought Mark Knopfler was the writer and singer of storybook love and had used Willie DeVille as a pseudonym. But it turned out they are two different people who just happen to work together and sound the same. Knopfler does perform on storybook love, though, as the lead guitarist. Storybook Love was written specifically for DeVille's album Miracle in early 1986, which would make it ineligible for an Academy Award because it was not written specifically for a movie, and it was also recorded for previous use. The rule states in part that, quote, the work must be recorded for use in the film prior to any exploitation through phonograph records or tapes, end quote. Because DeVille's album was not released until October 1987, one month after The Princess Bride was released into theaters, the first public performance of Storybook Love technically came in The Princess Bride. But I suspect the Academy allowed Storybook Love to be eligible if DeVille agreed to hold off the release of his album until after the film's debut. Or DeVille suggested delaying the album's release to keep his song eligible so that it appeared that the song was recorded for the film, then for the album. Either way, it became an Oscar nominee. Once the movie was in theaters, Storybook Love was released as a commercial single. It made no impact on the public and didn't help boost Willie DeVille's solo career. The fifth Oscar-nominated song of 1987 comes from the drama Cry Freedom, which dramatized the story of two real-life people in South Africa in the 1970s during the country's apartheid regime. Kevin Kline played white journalist Donald Woods, and Denzel Washington played black activist Steve Biko. This was Washington's big breakout role as a movie star after five years starring in the TV show St. Elsewhere and one of Kevin Kline's best movie roles ever. 
Produced and directed by Richard Attenborough, the movie cast a major spotlight on the injustices of apartheid in South Africa, where the minority white race ruled over the overwhelmingly majority black population with restrictive laws that made black people second-class citizens. Though Nelson Mandela had become the main person associated with apartheid since the regime ended in the late 1980s, one of the men who carried on the fight while Mandela was in prison was Steve Biko. After Biko's death in 1977 raised suspicion on the actions of the police, Woods pledged his life to uncover corruption. With apartheid still running over South Africa when Cry Freedom was released in November 1987, the title song for the film was the perfect opportunity to showcase the continuing fight against apartheid. It was written by the two men who composed the film's score, George Fenton and Jonas Gwangwa. Fenton wrote the score for the Oscar-winning Best Picture Gandhi in 1982, also directed by Richard Attenborough. Just as he did for Gandhi in collaborating with famed sitar player Ravi Shankar, Fenton worked on the score for Cry Freedom with Gwangwa, who was known in South Africa as a prominent jazz musician and added a prominent South African flavor to many parts of the score. Jazz in South Africa was the music of protest against apartheid, and Gwangwa was in the middle of it as the trombone player for the band Jazz Epistles in the 1950s. While on tour in the United States, Gwangwa discovered that his international fame was getting noticed by the apartheid regime in South Africa, and instead of returning to his home country, Gwangwa went into exile in the 1970s in the United States and later Botswana. Writing the music for Cry Freedom was right up his alley, and the score featured several elements of the nominated title song's melody that played during the end credits. George Fenton starts the vocal performance of Cry Freedom with a list of names of men jailed for protesting the South African government, including Nelson Mandela and Steve Biko. The next verse lists cities that were at the center of the anti-apartheid movement, including Soweto, where a massive student uprising led to 700 dead young people. Besides one sentence sung by Fenton in English, the rest of the song is sung by Jonas Gwangwa in the Zulu language as a call to action. When translated from Zulu to English, Gwangwa sings for the people to, quote, leave all your baggage, take a new step, go to other countries, go and talk of freedom, end quote. This is exactly what Donald Woods does at the end of the movie. A male chorus behind Guangua puts an exclamation mark on the statements made, and the song ends with the proclamation, We are fighting for freedom in South Africa. Mandela, Sizulu, Lutuli, Tadu, Stephen Biko, Govan Becky, Ravatsabukwe, Baba Tambo, Pasopa. Soweto, Alanga, the Sharpville, Matola, Alexandra, Abarone, Mamilodi, Google it Bye. 
Zinga, Lusaka, Mazeru, Harari. The children sing about the great ones who cry freedom for South Africa. Chela bonge, ambu chele longke lizwe, sifuni kululeku. one of the most powerful movie songs ever written, one that demands that the listener take action instead of just enjoying the song. Because it never got a commercial release beyond the soundtrack album, the song was not well known beyond the Academy members who watched Cry Freedom all the way to the end. Before we go on, I want to thank the folks at Translated.com for their help in translating those lyrics for Cry Freedom. One song that is about as different from Cry Freedom as you could get was Who's That Girl? The title song from Madonna's third movie. Her second movie, Shanghai Surprise, was a big flop in 1986 and should have warned the folks at Warner Brothers that Madonna was not movie material. But they went along with her desire to do another movie right away and they were punished with another big time flop. But the title song did well, going to the top of the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1987 just three weeks after Shakedown enjoyed its only week at number one. With the film being a flop, 
Warner Brothers couldn't throw enough promotion behind the title song to convince members of the Motion Picture Academy's music branch to give co-writers Madonna and Patrick Leonard a nomination. This was the second year that the two were summarily shunned by the Academy, with their song Live to Tell being ignored in 1986. That Girl was not passed over by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, who seems to really like Madonna. Three of the Golden Globe nominees would become Oscar nominees the following month. I've Had the Time of My Life, Shakedown, and Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. Joining those three and Who's That Girl as a Golden Globe nominee was the title song to the Michael J. Fox comedy The Secret of My Success. That song was performed by the rock band Night Train, who had a big hit with Sister Christian in 1984. But The Secret of My Success sounds just like another 80s rock song, and it's odd that the Hollywood Foreign Press didn't nominate Cry Freedom, since that organization gave the film four nominations in other categories, including in original score. But again, the Hollywood Foreign Press likes to nominate songs performed by big superstars, even though they're not going to perform them on the show. Frank Previtt's decision to say yes to Jimmy Einer's request for a song for Dirty Dancing began to pay off on January 23, 1988, when Time of My Life won the Golden Globe. On March 2nd, another showdown took place at the Grammy Awards in the Best Song Written for a Motion Picture category. This was the first year for the award, and because eligibility for the Grammys differs greatly from the Oscars, Time of My Life and Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now were competing against Somewhere Out There, which had been an Oscar nominee from 1986. Somewhere Out There won the first Grammy Award for Best Song from a Movie, and that was the first of two awards that James Horner, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Weil would win. The trio also won the very prestigious Song of the Year Grammy over the likes of U2 and Suzanne Vega. Time of My Life did win a Grammy, though, but not for the songwriters. Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren received the award for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group the second Grammy for Warrens, and surprisingly, 
just the first for Bill Medley. There was more good news for Dirty Dancing in early March, just in time for Oscar voters to take notice. The soundtrack album returned to the number one spot on the Billboard album chart after being away for a few months. So it would appear that the momentum was going toward Time of My Life for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Samuel Goldwyn Jr. was the producer of that year's Oscar telecast, and he and music supervisor Bill Conti had the good sense to invite as many original performers of the nominated songs as possible. Similar to the proceedings in last year's ceremony, the nominated songs were performed as part of one lengthy segment. Instead of Bernadette Peters acting as MC, it was former co-stars Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli singing introductions to each song mini-performance, hoping to drum up some interest in their new movie, Arthur II, which was coming out in a few months. Four of the songs were sung by the original performers on Oscar night, April 11, 1988. Grace Slick wasn't on the Oscar stage to perform Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now with Starship bandmate Mickey Thomas, and in her place was Gloria Stefan, a collaboration that didn't make much sense on paper, but turned out fine on stage. And though he was in the audience that night, Bob Seger didn't perform Shakedown, watching Little Richard put a different spin on the song. Little Richard made quite the commotion at the Grammy Awards earlier in the month during the presentation of the Best New Artist Award. He proclaimed that the winner was him and complained that he never got a Grammy despite being the architect of rock and roll. He didn't make a statement at the Oscars, toning down his Little Richard stick a bit to give a performance that neither hurt nor helped the song that night. Cry Freedom got a strong reception on Oscar night. Fenton entered the stage backed by a chorus of African singers and dancers, singing the opening of the song. Guangua entered later, and I'm willing to bet many of the audience members had no idea what he was singing in his call to action to help South Africa. But they loved the performance so much that some people gave a standing ovation as the dancers exited the theater through the aisles. To my knowledge, this was the first standing ovation given to a song performance at the Academy Awards. Instead of doing a brief comedy routine to help sell some tickets and remind people of their chemistry from the original Arthur movie, Moore and Minnelli just went right ahead and read off the nominees. After announcing that Time of My Life was the winning song, the three songwriters went to the stage, and it appeared that Best Actress nominee Sally Kirkland was very excited about it as the only person to stand up and congratulate the winning songwriters. As he should have, the first person Frank Previtt thanked was Jimmy Einer. Donald Markowitz and John DiNicola thanked a bunch of people, including their parents. Not really a trio of acceptance speeches that will be remembered, but the win itself was significant. It was the sixth winning song in a row to hit number one on the Billboard chart. And with a running time of close to seven minutes in the film version, it's the longest Oscar-winning song since the winning song from 1946 on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. As one of the original performers of I've Had the Time of My Life, Jennifer Warnes broke a four-way tie she shared with Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, and Irene Cara as female singers who had originated two Oscar-winning songs. Now, Jennifer Warren stood alone as the only woman to originate three Oscar-winning songs, putting her one away from tying the all-time champ, Bing Crosby. Unfortunately, Jennifer Warren never got the chance to tie Bing Crosby's record. 
She took a break from recording after her award-winning success in 1988 and didn't release another album until 1992 or record another movie song. That album from 1992 produced three commercial singles, neither of which made any noise in the music industry or with the public. Another album came out in 2001 and another one in 2018. The royalties from Up Where We Belong and I've Had the Time of My Life certainly were enough to keep Warrens from needing work to pay the bills, but it is a sad footnote to her career that after Time of My Life, Hollywood has not called on her again. Like Jennifer Warrens, Frank Previtt didn't get much of a boost to his career with the Oscar win, even though he claimed the job changed his life. He didn't write any more songs that came anywhere close to the success that he found with Time of My Life, and neither did his co-writers Donald Markowitz and John DiNicola. All three of them remained in the music business for many years, but never contributed much of any significance. Previtt wrote some songs for a few top artists, but again, nothing came of them. Jonas Guangua continued to be one of the most prominent musicians speaking out against apartheid, even as he remained in exile from his home country. He was able to perform a massive celebration of Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday at a concert in London's Wembley Stadium two months after performing at the Oscars. He performed on the trombone during his time on stage with other African singers, but only performed the ending portion of Cry Freedom, giving the bulk of the song to someone else who was not introduced. When apartheid ended, Guangua returned to South Africa in 1991 and was given the Order of Ikamanga in 2010, the highest award given for contributions to the arts. The only person who will return to the Oscars from this roster of nominees will be Diane Warren, and we'll be hearing more from her later in the Best Song Podcast. On the next episode, we're going to experience an oddity in the nominees for Best Original Song. Of course, I'm not going to give it away now because it would just spoil a surprise. You'll just have to tune in to find out. I'm so glad you were able to be a part of this episode. Thanks for singing along, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.